The rest of us, keep your Bibles open there at um, Exodus. Well, we're going to be looking through a little bit of the back end of 13, 14, and I'll mention in passing 15, but <clears throat> there's lots to deal with there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some up the back. If you don't own one, grab one of those and put your name in it. We want you to have one as well. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting today, it's a lovely day to have you along. We are in the middle of Exodus. Um, let me pray and we'll rip in. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we read your word again today, we ask that you would make us fear you rightly, trust you implicitly, and praise you endlessly as you deserve. For your glory and our good we pray. Amen. Um, Have a quick squeeze at this little picture on the screen. It's a representative of uh, an old Puritan saying. Um, Anyone seen this before, heard this before? What's going to happen in this scenario? You've got the sun shining down, you've got some clay bricks and you've got some ice blocks. What's going to happen here? This is what's going to happen. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. It's an old Puritan saying. The same sun that melts ice hardens clay. What they were getting behind, or why they were saying this, or what they were doing here, it's reflecting on this idea of the same source, the sun interacts and reveals the nature of different objects. With clay in accordance with this nature, the sun further hardens. And ice in accordance with this nature, it's revealed as it melts. The same sun that melts ice Hardens clay. Now, I want you to have that lurking in the back of your mind as we turn to this chapter, all these chapters in Exodus, because we're going to see how this plays out quite constantly, not just in Exodus, but in fact all the Bible. But let me give you a little bit of context about where context of where we've come from and where we're going. All right, it's a little bit of a recap that I try to do most weeks, just to keep up with the flow. Um, what we've seen so far, well, in line with Yahweh's word. From the moment that he appeared to Moses, Yahweh has just enacted his plan to save Israel from slavery in Egypt. As Yahweh said in Exodus 3.19, and I've I've mentioned this verse a thousand times because it's so important, it's only after Yahweh stretches out his hand and strikes Egypt, it's only after he's performed mighty acts of judgment and wonder among them that the Pharaoh will let Israel go. And we saw this come to fruition then last week in uh, Exodus 11 and 12. That final strike against the land of Egypt, that sudden and dramatic death of all the firstborn sons at the same time, whether they were Israelites or Egyptians. In every household, remember, every household, Yahweh decreed that someone must die. And that's what we heard happen. At that moment, at Yahweh's decree, at midnight, the firstborn sons of Egypt were taken. But Yahweh, in his mercy, you will remember, chose and provided a way out from this death and judgment that everyone was unavoidably trapped under and deserving of. Do you remember how God did this? Do you remember he provided the way out for anyone who trusted in his word? It was that Passover provision. It was that a lamb or a goat was able to be sacrificed as a representative and as a substitute for a household. And any household who actually was obedient to that word, that heard that offer of deliverance and trusted and therefore acted on God's promise by killing the lamb and symbolically smearing the blood over their doorposts, these households Yahweh passed over when he came to strike all the firstborn of of, of Egypt. It's not that God pretended that those occupants were more worthy. He didn't. 
They didn't deserve anything less than his judgment. It's just that in his mercy, he provided a way and accepted the death of a substitute, the lamb or the goat, as sufficient in the place of the firstborn sons. Wowzers. That is a huge event. And it's certainly the event that got Pharaoh's attention. Because not only at that point did he let Israel go, in fact, he ordered them out. In fact, he was compelled by Yahweh's final terrifying strike against the land of Egypt. Well, he didn't just ask them to leave. In the middle of the night, he summoned Moses and Aaron and he ordered them out with all your belongings. Take your flocks, take your herds, and actually take all of your belongings and stack of our belongings and get out. But notice there at the end of 13, no, 12.32. Notice at the end of 13.32. Let me just find it here. No, 12.32, sorry. It's where Pharaoh is having this conversation with Moses and Aaron and he says, take your flocks, your herds, as you said, go and also bless me. What? What's going on there? What are we to make of that little statement? It's an interesting one. Is it a sign that Pharaoh has finally understood who Yahweh actually is? Is this a sign that Pharaoh is finally submitting himself to the real God of the universe? Sounds promising, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it's not what we see happening here. In fact, what we'll see and what we'll now turn our focus to on this, uh, turn our attention to on this section in Exodus 14 and 15 is that Pharaoh hasn't changed at all. In fact, Pharaoh, in perfect alignment with his natural inclination, his natural desires, and in perfect alignment with God's sovereign will, Pharaoh will again harden his heart. He will again rebel and reject the idea that Yahweh is in charge. And through this, Yahweh will gain the glory he deserves. In fact, can I just tell you straight off the bat here, folks? In fact, I've put it on your, on your outlines. This is the big idea that I want you to grasp from this text that I want you to leave more convinced about than ever. Ever, Let me state it for you as clearly as I can before I show you how it works out in the text. It's not just here in this bit. It's through the Bible over and over and over and over again. Here it is. This is the big idea I want you to see. Yahweh, that is the God of the Bible, Yahweh will ultimately use every event, every occasion, and even every individual to display the greatness of his glory. Now, do you get that? That is a huge statement. Yahweh will ultimately use every occasion, every event, and every individual to display the greatness of his glory. And how will he do this exactly, you ask? You should be asking it. If you're not, you are now. God will do this by ultimately using every event every occasion and every individual as a means to display his greatness in either his righteous wrath through judgment or display the greatness of his grace through forgiveness and mercy. Do you want me to repeat that? It's heavy, it's huge, it's massive and it's excellent. God will ultimately do this by using every event, every occasion and even every individual as the means to display his greatness in one of two ways, either in his righteous wrath against sin and in judgment, or display the greatness of his grace and mercy through forgiveness. Now let me show you how that plays out. What do we see here as Israel leave Egypt? How does God use this event of thousands and thousands of just freed slaves walking through the desert by night? doesn't sound quite ideal, does it? 
Well, look there again with me. Look with me at um, Exodus three seventeen and 18. Not Exodus 3, Exodus 13. I was thinking, I'm not going back to there. Exodus 13, 17, uh, starting at 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though in fact it was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Skip down to verse 20. One, rather, by day the Lord, Yahweh, went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Did you notice what's happening here? God hasn't just delivered the Israelites from Uh, slavery in Egypt to now fend for themselves no no notice he now leads them through the desert personally I I, so get that image like a father holding the hand of a toddler as he navigates the busy streets this is the this is the image that we should be seeing here Yahweh is guiding Israel specifically visibly tangibly pillar of cloud in the day pillar of fire in night his divine presence is not just felt but seen and experienced by all the people Yahweh is using this occasion to further reinforce the greatness of his personal care and concern for Israel, exercising that fatherly wisdom even, did you notice, by leading them the, wrong, the, the long way around. Don't go through Philistia. Though you think you're ready for battle, though you're you know, puffing your chest out as you walk along, you're not ready for battle. And God, with his wisdom as a father over children, knew this. And so he led them the right way, the long way round. Are you getting the sense of God's greatness here? This is, this is huge. His personal presence with Israel, his constant watchful wisdom leading them through the strangeness of this change, their new circumstances as a people wandering. It's what we're supposed to see here, folks. We're supposed to get the grace of God, the comfort and the assurance he provides as he never leaves his people's side. In fact, have a look there. It's reinforced in 1322. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. That's massive. God visibly, tangibly, experientially with his people. Now I hope, I hope that many of us can identify with this kind of feeling or experience. I hope you've somehow felt that inexplicable closeness to God in a hard season of life. Not necessarily by, you know, pillar of cloud or fire necessarily if that's happened come and talk to me Um, but certainly as a spiritual presence a closeness that carries you through a metaphoric wilderness if you will in life and i want to say that's something that you should desire it's something that we should pray for that we should hope to experience that peace of god that passes understanding we recently did in our philippians series didn't we Remember we read Paul's letter to the Philippians, that supernatural contentment that he spoke of as the Holy Spirit guards his heart and mind in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.17. Paul spoke of it as he sat in a prison cell in Rome, eventually to be executed. He says, I know what it is to be content. Wow. We should desire that kind of spiritual contentment. We should be praying for this contented experience of God's closeness in the metaphoric wildernesses. But what happens when you don't feel it? 
What happens when you're not aware or not presently experiencing the closeness of God and his fatherly care? What's going on in the wilderness of life's experience when the wilderness seems endless and ongoing and inescapable? When God's presence suddenly seems distant? Do you know that experience too? When God who was seemed to be so close now suddenly seems so far and far away and when the wilderness path that you were traveling on where it seemed to be clearing now only find yourself hemmed in again but in a deeper darkness despair of circumstance where's god in those moments see israel is about to come to one of those moments immediately in chapter 14 as god turns their path backwards to camp there as it says in um 14 2 camp but uh, between migdol and the sea what, what are we to make of that difficult to sort of get a bit of a picture from that in your head but essentially the mountains of migdol and the sea god has led them into a dead end and camped them there why is he doing that why would he take them out of egypt and then camp them in a bottleneck is he absent from this event has God suddenly fallen asleep at the wheel, so to speak? Or has he suddenly distanced himself from Israel so they just sort of wander aimlessly and realize themselves trapped? No, not even close. You see, because the truth is, God is fashioning even this event to reveal the greatness of his glory. In fact, read it with me in 14 verses 1 to 4. Read this with me. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Harioth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the desert in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. So the Israelites did this. You see what's going on here, folks? God is intentionally fashioning the specifics of this occasion to gain glory for himself. That is to further reveal the greatness of his power, both to Egypt and to Israel, as he designs a final showdown with Pharaoh. And it plays out just as God intended. In fact, 14 verse 5, we're told that Pharaoh sees that the Israelites have trapped themselves with no human hope of escape, humanly speaking. So Pharaoh and his officials, what do they do? They change their minds. In other words, Pharaoh reveals that his plea for Yahweh's blessings on the night of the Passover were indeed a sham because now he thinks again that he can defy Yahweh. Now he thinks that he can trump him and he can again enslave God's people. And so he sets off after them with (laughs) chariots of war. I want to pause here for a second. I want to point out something that I assume and I hope that you've noticed and maybe even been wrestling with throughout Exodus so far. It's the question of who is responsible for Pharaoh's action. Or put another way, who is responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart? Have you been wondering that? Because despite the undeniable facts of Yahweh's revealed power, Pharaoh continues to refuse to submit to his rule. And it looks like he does it a few times. We saw it there, oh, bless me. I'm sorry, I've changed my mind. And ultimately, he reneges every time he rejects the command of Yahweh and he continues in his rebellion against him. It's fascinating stuff to read. We see, in fact, if you've noticed all the way through, Moses records two things happening simultaneously in Pharaoh's reaction and rejection of Yahweh. 
Pharaoh is hardening his heart against the God of the universe, against Yahweh, and two, Yahweh is hardening Pharaoh's heart at the same time. You want some references? 421, 815, 832, 934, 10, 20, 11, 10, basically all through chapters 4 to 14, multiple examples of constantly this backwards and forwards. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's It just keeps going backwards and forwards. What's going on here? How can this be? How can both things be happening at once? That's a question you should be wondering. Who is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh or God? And the short answer is yes. I want to explain this a little bit more. I want to try to help us get a grasp, not necessarily solve this, but at least get a handle on what's happening here. And to quote an old Puritan saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Do you get that? Essentially, what I'm getting at here is two unavoidable and unapologetic truths of Scripture are about to be played out in this showdown between Pharaoh and Yahweh. Two things are occurring at the same time in the same event from the same stimulus. And though the outcome will be totally different, one hardens, one melts, Yahweh's intent in the same occasion is that it's the same. It's to reveal the greatness of his glory. These two simultaneous repeated truths all through scripture are this. I've written them down again because I like, I've cut this down a couple of times. So this is as short as I can get, right? (laughs) Here's the first unavoidable and apologetic truth of Scripture. Yahweh is completely sovereign and in control of all things. And yet he never exercises his sovereignty in a way that diminishes human responsibility. It's written there for you, so read it over a couple of times. That's the first truth that you will find time and time again in Scripture, unavoidable and apologetic. And the second truth is this. Humans are morally responsible creatures rightly held accountable for their actions and decisions. And yet this never functions in such a way to make God contingent on human decision. Read that over a couple of times. Think through this. In practice, what it means here is Pharaoh freely, under no external compulsion and, in com- and completely in line with his natural desires, decides again to deny Yahweh, to reject his rule and to attempt to overthrow him by enslaving Israel. And at the very same time, with holy, good and right intention, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and reveals the hardness of Pharaoh's heart by presenting him with a situation and a decision. Hey, Pharaoh, look at this, Israel trapped again. No way out for them, Pharaoh. You're going to respect Yahweh and leave them be, or are you going to deny me again and attempt to exert yourself over me? Do you appreciate what's going on here, friends? God is completely sovereign in control, and humans are totally responsible. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And with every free and willful rejection, Pharaoh further reveals his clayness and is responsible And God hardens him in accordance with his sovereign will. Friends, it is fascinating, deeply profound, rich truths to think on. As I said, I want you to get a handle on it, not necessarily solve it. I think there's a mystery here that cannot be solved. I can go so far as to say that they are both biblical and true, and yet I can't necessarily explain how they meet. But you can't read the Bible rightly and try to ignore either. Something you've got to keep wrestling with, perhaps. And why is this all happening? In the mind and the intention of Pharaoh, he's flexing the might of his supposed glory. In the intention of Yahweh, he's using the same event to display his glory 
in judgment as he crushes Pharaoh once and for all. And at the same time, through the same occasion, display the greatness of his glory in mercy as he saves a faithless, thankless, undeserving people in Israel. I mean, did you notice that as the chapter was read out, by the way? Did you notice the faithless, thankless, undeserving response of Israel against Yahweh, who has just performed, by the way, a series of staggering miracles that seen them released from their 430 years in slavery. That's just happened. And did you notice how quickly they forget all that? How quickly they turn to Yahweh, they lie about their own actions and essentially accuse God of evil. In fact, we'll look at this more uh, in deep... No, I won't. Mike will. woo Mike will look at this more deeply next week. But just hear how it plays out. Read with me, 14, 10 to 12. Just have a look at this. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to, to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Did you hear that? I mean, I want to. I can well imagine that they would be terrified as they see the dust of the army coming towards them as they're hemmed in by the mountains and the sea and the desert, like sitting ducks. I can appreciate that feeling of terror. Can you not appreciate that? That's a scary thing. But have they forgotten all that's just gone on? Did you notice how their retelling changes? Didn't we say, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? That's a lie! They didn't say that at all! It's the opposite of what they were saying as they cried out to God under the yoke of Egyptian slavery. They're lying! <laughs> and do you hear their accusation? It's actually an accusation. You've just brought us out here to die. It's the charge against Moses and against Yahweh. Why are there enough graves in, in Egypt? You killed brought us out here to smash us? What's going on? <laughs> That's a little harsh, sorry about that. <laughs> and yet, get this, and yet, Yahweh is even using this occasion, this event of their lying, grumbling, false accusations of many individuals against them. Yahweh is even using this as an opportunity to display his greatness of his glory. I just lost my place. The wonders of technology. I'm in the wrong sermon altogether. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the greatness of his glory, but not in judgment and wrath against the helpless, hopeless, faithless Israelites. Though in reading it, you could imagine if he decided he would do so. But instead, Yahweh reveals the greatness of his glory in grace through mercy as he positions himself to rescue Israel once again from their hopeless situation. In fact, read Moses' words to Israel there and note the greatness of God's grace to them. 14, 13, so chapter 14, verses 13. And 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of, that Yahweh will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You need only be still. There's so much I want to dig in. I mean, imagine that, just be still. How hard would that be? You could see the dust rising, just be still. Yikers. But it's exactly what God does. 
In fact, we literally then see Yahweh fighting for Israel. We see this in the text as Yahweh moves to keep the closing in Egyptian army away from Israel in verse 20. We see it as Yahweh blows and separates the waters of the sea, creating a path for Israel to cross over and escape in verse 21. We see it as Yahweh sends confusion amongst the Egyptians in verse 24. And as he then even physically jams up the wheels of the Egyptian chariots, who've continued to pursue Israel across, across that path in verse 25. In fact, even the Egyptians realize that Yahweh is personally fighting for Israel in verse 25, but not before Yahweh closes the water back over them. And in verse 27, we hear that Yahweh swept all of them into the sea. Verse 28, so none survived. Yahweh uses the same event to display the greatness of his glory in wrath and judgment as he destroys the arrogant, faithless, rebellious Pharaoh and at the same time display the greatness of his glory in grace as he acts mercifully towards the lying, faithless, thankless Israelites. The same God, the same event, revealing one group as ice in accordance with the purpose of his will, one group as clay in accordance with the purpose of his will, in such a way that both groups are still held morally responsible. How do you feel about that, friends? How do you, when you read this, what's your gut reaction when you hear this? The idea that God will reveal his glory in both mercy and judgment. I mean, if you're honest, you're likely wondering how this is fair. You're probably wondering how God can do this. How is it that he hardens some for judgment and melts others with mercy? And again, if that's not your question, it should be a question and it will be from now on. But listen to God's own answer to this question as Paul reflects on the very same scene to the Roman church. In fact, read this with me. Uh, I think I put it up on the screen, Justin. Romans 9. I'm going to read a little bit from 14 to 18. Paul preempting this same question. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. I want to keep reading there, but I'm going to stop myself. Keep reading the rest of that section. It is a bottler. It is a humdinger of a doozy and you can't miss it. But don't miss the main point. The point is this, God, Yahweh, the great I am, He will ultimately use every event, every occasion, and even every individual to magnify the greatness of his glory, either in judgment or in mercy, and he is completely justified in doing so. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he will harden whom he wants to harden. And at the end of time, get this, friends, at the end of time, every mouth will stand agape at the wonder of his greatness and glory in every act of judgment and in every act of mercy. You know what? Pharaoh will be there. Pharaoh will be there further, even as he's further hardening himself in rebellion against Yahweh, he will not fail to acknowledge the rightness and the greatness of God's glory and judgment, even as he finds himself the object of wrath. 
and Moses will be there in a puddle, melted by the undeserved grace of God towards him, also magnifying the greatness of God's glory as an object of mercy. And friends, you and I will be there too. The question is, will you be magnifying God's glory as an object of his mercy or an object of his wrath? There's only two options. You will personally magnify God's glory on that last day. Don't think you won't, but will it be as ice or will it be as clay? Friends, that's a heavy question, isn't it? It's an unavoidable, important question to answer because as we've seen and heard already, God is sovereign and you're responsible for your choices, so choose to be ice. (laughs) Ask God in his mercy to melt your heart that as you read his word and as you hear his promises, you don't harden your heart. You don't harden yourself through cynicism. You don't harden yourself through unbelief. You don't harden yourself through distrust. Rather, ask that God by his spirit would override your natural inclinations that we all have. That God would instead do as he promises through Ezekiel 36, 26, one of my very favorite verses in the Bible. That he would remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you would fear him, so that you would trust him, so that you would praise him as he deserves. In fact, did you notice that that was the right reaction of Israel after this miraculous deliverance across the Red Sea? It was their response as the dead bodies of the Egyptians washed up to shore, 14 verse 30. How did they react? Have a look with me. 14.31 And when the Egyptians saw the mighty hand of Yahweh displayed against... Sorry, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of Yahweh displayed against the Egyptians... The people feared the Lord, feared Yahweh, and put their trust in him and his, Moses, his servant. And then they performed a song of praise to acknowledge the greatness of God's glory in judgment and mercy. That's all of chapter 15. I'm, I haven't got time to read it now. And I want to say, friends, this ought to be our response too. In fact, this is what will reveal the substance of your character as either ice or clay. As we learn to either fear God or scoff and mock at him, trust God, or distrust him, to praise God, or heap contempt upon him, for all his glory and judgment and mercy. But this is the big difference for us and for uh, for Israel. We don't do that as we observe the body of Egyptians washing up dead on the shore. We're called to do this as we consider the cross of Christ. We're called to do this as we look and see what God has done in the cross of Christ. Here is the climax of God's judgment and wrath against sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God poured out his right wrath for your sin, for my sin, for the sins sufficient to cover the whole world. And he tipped that wrath on Jesus. The extent of his mercy, the apex of his mercy sorry, of his wrath and judgment. And at the same time, the apex of his grace and mercy towards sinners. Those who otherwise deserve death get to plead the blood of Christ and he will pass over them. Friends, what's your reaction to the cross of Christ? That's the question. Are you ice 
That is, as you read the words of Scripture, of the revelation of God and all his awesome might, in all his awesome power, in all his mercy, displayed in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, are you drawn to melt into willing, trusting, praise-filled submission because you suddenly recognize yourself as the undeserving recipient of that mercy in Jesus? That's the right answer. Or are you clay, reading the very same revelation of God in his word, hearing the very same description of his awesome might and power and invitation to mercy through Jesus, and yet hardening yourself like clay in rejection or in opposition or in indifference to God? Ice or clay, folks? It's the question you must consider. God will gain his glory through you. May it be as an object of his mercy through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, we pray. In fact, forgive us for the times where our natural inclination is to harden our hearts in mockery or in ignorance or in distrust or accusation against you. Instead, by your spirit, Father, work through your word to soften our hearts that we might hear and see and love the truth of your glory that will ultimately be displayed in every occasion, in every event, in every individual. And that by trusting in Jesus' death on our behalf, that you would make us objects of your mercy to bring glory to you on that final day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.